Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Janie Nielsen. She's an assistant professor, uh, part of the Emory Global Diabetes Research Center. Um, And we're going to talk about uh, her research. So, Janie, thanks for coming. Thank you for inviting me. This is a pleasure. Okay, well, tell me about uh, your work. Yeah, so I've worked uh, in different areas of public health in terms of um, looking at diabetes and related risk factors. And what I've been mostly interested in is how people who are socially related or biologically related resemble each other in risk factors related to diabetes. So, for instance, I've looked at households in Uganda and I've looked at couples in England and now I'm looking at parents and children in the U.S. What do you mean they they resemble each other in terms of... uh... Do they both have to have diabetes in a family or like, what do you mean? Yeah, so what I've been interested in, uh, it actually started with that all the cure and approaches to prevent type 2 diabetes focus on individuals. But what we see is that a lot of these people, they lose weight and they start eating healthier and they increase their physical activity. But then over time, they kind of go back into their old habits. And I think it's, we need to see people as more than individuals because most of us like have a partner we will eat with. Maybe we have children to pick up after school. How is our other social circle, uh, circles? Are they focused on healthy diets? So all these things I think we need to integrate when we prevent, uh, di- want to prevent diabetes. And that made me uh, start researching into to how do we look like people who are that we are socially related with. So for instance, what we have seen in a study from England is that we can not predict, but that people's risk of getting type 2 diabetes increase with their spouse's BMI. So the higher BMI the spouse has, the higher risk a person has of diabetes. Well, it makes sense because uh, someone with a higher BMI, they may be eating foods that you know, cause that. That's correct. They have a lifestyle like that. So if you're eating with them, they say, hey, you want some of this? You want a dessert? Yeah, they have some and pressure you. But still, we, why don't we then include the spouses when we try to make people healthier, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Do you, um, I guess you can call them accountability partners in a way. Um, have you seen systems for people that go to the doctor where the doctor does say, hey, you, you know, you can't do this alone. You know, what are two or three people that you can have as like a support group for yourself? Have you tried that or has your research tried that? So there is a... Often when it's out there, we ty- we, there are approaches where you tell a person who gets diagnosed with diabetes that they should bring their spouse. But what the current approaches have not done yet is also to focus on the health and the spouse. So instead of looking at the spouse as an even person, they kind of just look for them for support. And a lot of these behavioral theories, they kind of point to that in order for you to change, you need something that's like important enough for you to give up on something you like, like eating cakes. And I think if we were making spouses aware that they also have an increased risk of getting the same disease, 
then maybe they would be more inclined to participate. What you mentioned with like pointing out to a few peers, that has, I think there are a few studies that have done that. But again, they only look at them some as support person, not as like someone who also needs to change their behaviors and become more healthy. Well, have you noticed that, you know, would that be a first step? What if, uh, you know, the husband decides, all right, I'm going to do this and lose weight and they're doing it for a few months and the wife is supporting, would that encourage the wife to also do it or does that not usually translate? We have seen in a few studies, not some studies I have done, that if a spouse participates in a weight loss uh, intervention, then the other one also loses weight. So there are like some spillover effects that we don't, that was not even intended. So there's definitely something there, but it hasn't really been done so structured yet. Oh, well, have you observed just impromptu some of these communities doing it in better ways than others? Like what, did you, what did you see through your research? So in my research so far, we have only done observational studies. We haven't done uh, weight loss interventions, but it's something we are approaching uh, different foundations to include. Uh, Even in observational studies, have you observed that any cultures do it better than others or differently, like, you know, without you having to say anything? So what we have seen in, in Uganda, when I worked there, it was a cross-sectional study, which means that we can only see what is associated. We cannot say what led to the other. But what we saw there was that if one person in a household was diagnosed with diabetes and was told to change their diet, then it looked like the other family members had a healthier cardiometabolic uh, profile. And we hypothesized that that was because that people there don't have their finances to eat different food. So that's like you cook one food and everyone will have to eat it. So I, I definitely think there is families where you eat the same, maybe easier targets than I think a lot of modern family, maybe the children doesn't even have food at home. They eat food at the school and then I don't know for dinner. So yeah, so I think cultures where, you, where food is something you share may be easier. Well, did you observe that it was or, or no? If it's culturally shared the food, you have either, I guess, entire families that are overweight or entire families that are not, right? Yeah, we see that. Uh, and in a study here from the U.S., we have seen that it, how children progress in weight from age five and actually until they are 30 is really shaped by their parents' weight status. So we have seen it there. But another thing that we, that's also happens with couples is that you don't just choose a random person to marry or to, to be in a relationship with. It's often a, a very small pool of people you actually choose between it. Maybe it's someone you met at school. And so people who resemble also t tend to marry more often than people who are very different. So you could hypothesize that two people who both have obesity may marry and then their lifestyle would also influence their children. So yeah, you do see families where all of them have weight challenges. And what did, so what did you see in places where the family ate differently? Everyone ate a you know, different thing. We haven't researched that, but uh, I have, there has been some studies from Australia and New Zealand and where they also included some of the small islands there. And they were focused on weight in, in children in school interventions. And what they saw was that children in in Australia and New Zealand actually had higher impact of what their parents would buy for them in terms of food. Whereas I think the other islands they looked at was like Vanuatu and maybe Tonga and their children, which were often from lower socioeconomic families, they could not influence what their parents would buy for them to eat. And so what these studies suggest is that the higher socioeconomic status um, 
at least country level, then the more influence children have. But what we then see in the US is that people who come from high income uh, households, they have less obesity and type 2 diabetes than families from low income settings. Okay, so what's next for your studies? Like, when are you going to be able to do the next one? And what's it going to look like? So we have applied for some money to look at what is now, uh, you know, there's always these uh, new terms going around. And one of them that's very popular now, it's something called complex interventions. So you, you don't only focus on one aspect, but you focus on multiple aspects. So it could be in a community, you focus on the school. Is there healthy f- food at the school? Is that a choice? You focus on families, but you don't only tell them to eat. You help them going to the supermarket. What do you buy in the supermarket? There's so many things to, to, in, uh, com- uh, to in- integrate into one intervention. And so that's one thing we have applied for funding for. Another thing I also think we need to realize with these diseases is that it's not only a choice what people eat. It's also sometimes what they can afford and what is easy if you're like have, working two jobs. I definitely think it would be interesting to do these complex interventions. But I also think that the real challenge is probably should be addressed at a political level, like with policy. Well, what kind of policy do you envision that would help people that wanted to, uh, you know, avoid diabetes or lose weight or feel better? In some countries, they have started taxing uh, sugar-sweetened beverages, which I think, and which have, uh, seems like it's an approach that works and makes people buy less. In some countries, they try to make a fat tax on food with a high amount of fat. Another thing could also be if you do these taxes, and I know that taxes are not so popular in the US, there's all these like debate if you want a nanny state, but if you have taxes and in some places they're then trying to, the, the taxes that comes from sugar-sweetened beverages, we put that into subsidized more healthy food. And in the US, you could argue that uh, cigarettes tax as far as I'm uh, aware. So it, it wouldn't be the first time we try to tax an unhealthy behavior. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, cigarettes are pretty heavily taxed. Yeah, Um, and another thing is infrastructure. A lot of people in the U.S. live in neighborhoods where it's not, uh, where the car is just the most uh, convenient option and maybe it's the only option you have if you want to go somewhere. It's just a little concerning, you know, taxing certain foods. I mean, sugar, it seems like everyone would want to tax that, but maybe not, but Taxing fat, I mean, there's definitely big schools of thought that say fat is bad and other ones that say fat is very good. Yes, and that's always confusing. (laughs) Well, what if you had someone that was vegan and they ended up dictating the policy saying, like, everyone's going to be taxed heavily if they don't eat vegan in this one place. And I think people would really not like that. You know, that would cause a lot of uproar. I think so, too. And I also think sugar tax is is hot in the country where... Coca-Cola was funded. I'm in Georgia, so I know how big influence Coca-Cola have here. So there's a lot of interests. But, but if we don't do anything, I, I think like all these interventions we are doing, they may help at an individual level. But if we want to help at a population level. Sounds like, yeah, it sounds like you have to get the next level study going where you give suggested, you know, one would have, let's say, accountability partners, which you said has already been tested, but maybe as, the, you know, like, Maybe the placebo is or the control is just the person individually and the next level is they have an accountability partner or partners. Then the next level is like group sign up, you know, within a family or within like a social circle, like everyone's going to, you know, eat healthier and you pick up to like three or four other people and you guys are all in it together. You know, it's not just one person and the other ones, you know, 
criticizing or applauding them. But I, I've heard, for instance, um, I don't remember which church, but there was a church that did, did what they called the Daniel plan. And like the whole congregation decided to change what they eat and all that. And it was supposed to be very successful. Mark Hyman talked about that in his book. And I think the, the whole congregation lost like 250,000 pounds altogether. Oh, it seems to work better in a social setting. You know? Yeah, that, that sounds awesome. I haven't uh, read about that. I'll definitely look it up. Yeah, I think congregations is a, a very good example of where it has to be like groups of people who are connected in a natural way or what you say, like are already connected, not like something we make up for a while, but something where this is like your life and this is where you would go also when you're not part of an intervention, at least if we want lasting success. Yeah, because I know myself, you know, in my family, a bunch of people have weight issues and at various times I've tried to eat healthier. And, you know, if you go to like a, a family dinner and, you know, your parents or other people are like, hey, you want some rolls? You want this? You want, come on, you want some dessert? It's much harder than if they don't pressure you or that food doesn't even appear on the table. So I would bet that, uh, you know, with cooperation from people that hang out with you and share meals with you, that would be a tremendous benefit if they weren't, uh, they're not trying to sabotage it. I know some people do, but at least more supportive. Yeah, I agree. And for many of us, food is also something we, we show love with. So when I go to my mom, she will cook a very nice dinner and she will cook my favorite food and she will keep encouraging me to eat more. And it's out of love, of course. <laughs> and I think it yeah. is that for a lot of people, if someone is sick, we bring over food. It's been like part of our traditions for many generations. And I also think it's, it's hard for us to say no, because then we are kind of rejecting their love. So, yeah, I definitely think if it's like something you can share a lot of you or, or like at least talk about so you, you can still show love giving the food, but you don't reject the love but only by only having a little or something. So, I mean, what are the thoughts of, have come to mind? Like, what have you seen that's interesting or different in your research so far? Uh, do you have any particular thing in mind when you say different or something? I, do you think something I didn't expect? Or? Yeah, like, you know, you've seen people in Uganda, which people you know, most people haven't seen. Um, I, I don't know what other sites you've been to, but I'm sure there was like big variation between, you know, the different places you went, the different cultures, like, uh, were there any other particulars you like str that struck you that you noticed? Yeah. So both in Uganda and I've also done a little work in Vietnam. What we see is that some of the people with, for instance, type two diabetes is like this picture. We always have people who have obesity and, and may not be so active physically. But what we're also seeing is that a lot of them don't have weight issues and they're not that old. So we do see that type 2 diabetes is, is, is not the same disease everywhere. So for instance, in Uganda, we, we, uh, this was in a rural setting in the mountains and we walk up and, and visited this household where the, the husband had uh, type 2 diabetes. And he was, I think he was like 55 and he had had it for some years but he was, had never had any weight issues and, and he already had like severe complications. So it's just like a confusing disease. And for him, of course, the challenge was not so much that his family needed to lose weight, but maybe to eat a more uh, diverse uh, diet. And, and then again, what do you tell people who don't have a lot of money in terms of like changing their diet? So that's one thing uh, we've seen. And then Another thing I've seen in the U.S. is just in a study we hope to get published soon is that I've always been like, oh, we need to have the family helping and we need to engage them in an intervention. But then recently we had looked at the mental burden of being married to someone with a chronic disease. 
And it's not easy. It's okay. a disease that's there every day. So we have found that spouses uh, of people with diabetes have a higher risk of depression. And I think that's also something we need to take into consideration with all this like focus on, on the disease. It's also how do you deal with having this disease that will be in your life forever? Yeah, I mean, I can see, right, if you see your spouse suffering and developing comorbidities and just not feeling well. I mean, it would also affect the relationship, too, because I know if, um, if I'm not feeling well on a given day or if I'm agitated, and I try not to, but you're usually shorter with other people and gruffer and, you know, leads to more fights. So in relationships where one person has, a, you know, a condition to, that won't go away, I'm sure over time they become grumpier and grumpier and, you know, the relationship has a lot of strain just because of that. Yeah, I agree. And also having to help someone, like if my partner is sick I'm, or have like a, a cold, I'm very not, uh, sweet, I'll make him tea. And But if I had to be sweet every day for, <laughs> for many years, that's also something you, that would probably impact my mental health. You only have so much sweetness before you find <laughs> ways to get rid of them, you know? <laughs> I don't know. It's actually something I've also considered looking at is like um, how often people who have a chronic disease get divorced compared to people who don't. I am, But then again, there's so many people soon who have a chronic disease, right? So, but I definitely think it impacts relationship. And that's also where you could argue that having an intervention, including both spouses would help because you could focus on, on the good things also and how to keep living together. Well, have you seen um, many instances of a smaller family where let's say it's just a couple, but both of them are on the same path eating-wise and, and what happened with them? Uh, you mean like in terms where they have both shifted to a healthier diet? Right, yeah, but they don't necessarily have children or a bigger family, so it's, it's more isolated. It's just like, let's say, a young couple, and they just have each other only, and they're both pulling the same direction on diet. You know, they're both doing the same thing. Yeah, so when we look at type 2 diabetes, it's, uh, it's often like a little older uh, couples that due to this disease presenting a little later in life. But if we look at obesity, there will definitely be a lot of younger couples who don't have children. Um, but we haven't really looked at them so far. There is like a, a few studies showing that people who are heavily obese um, tend to marry each other more often than to marry someone who's not obese. And unfortunately, that's due to stigma, I believe, to a high extent. Uh, but we haven't looked at them specifically now. Do you know of any resources for someone um, that's in a family, in a relationship that's trying to, uh, you know, combat diabetes? Like if they, if they go to their doctor, you think the doctor will just shrug their shoulders and say, you know, sure, talk to your partner. Make sure that they understand. Or what will they do? Yes, yeah, so I've, I know that the CDC have a big um, scale project called the, uh, where they use these results that was produced in a big uh, diabetes prevention program in the US. It's called the DPP. And you can get a referral to a DPP by your doctor, but it's not set up such that it's only for spouses. I believe you can bring your spouse to some of the session, but it's not like a, a spousal intervention. So what's, uh, what's ahead in your plan for the future? What's like the next uh, research project that you work on? So, um, so one thing I would like to do is to, um, to figure out the burden of these diseases within households and families, because often in research, we tend to focus on one disease. But now I told you that we have also seen that in families with diabetes, there may be more um, 
depression and then we would probably also see more hypertension and, and then we just we move towards that field called uh, multimorbidity where people have several diseases at the same time and then you could envision that in a household there may be a husband and a wife and they both have multiple diseases and then we suddenly have a lot of diseases that you need to take into consideration for, for treatment so I'm both trying to do some studies observational where I look at how many diseases in a household and who are the household who have all these diseases at the same time. And then the other part would be to, 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 um, to set up some interventions for these family who, who suffer from a lot of the chronic diseases. Okay. Maybe that's why you should start with like old married couples. Yeah. Cause it was just them and the kids are gone and yeah. then it might be simpler, you know? Yeah, I, I, you're right. And also, so because I've also sometimes thought about like, so a lot of people start having prediabetes. They are told by the doctor that they have an increased risk of diabetes. And then if, let's say, they still have home living children who may have asthma and already are, also have obesity, it's, it's just a lot of things to deal with. So I think you're right. It may be simpler just to look at, at couples um, to start with. But Unfortunately, reality is really simple, right? Life is not so simple, but I think we yeah. should try to find good, simple approaches, but it's just hard sometimes to find simple approaches to complex uh, situations. Yeah, that's true. Well, very good. Jamie, what's the best way for people to learn more about your research? It would be to go to our uh, Emer Global Emory Diabetes Research Center. We have a site, and then you can look who is a part of that and look at okay. the projects they're working with. All right. Well, very good. Well, Janie, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for inviting. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.